And oftentimes we get surprised because we're not prepared, right? We're not prepared. Or maybe we haven't been vigilant. We haven't been watching and looking at the signs and so forth. You know, one great surprise that this country has experienced this past year was our election, was it not? What a surprise indeed, especially to our friends on the other, uh, on the Democratic, uh, in the Democratic Party. Uh, they just were not prepared. They thought they had this thing in the bag. And now they're all uh, grieving and uh, wondering where they're going to go, what they're going to do and so forth. They just can't believe on what has happened. And for them, this whole thing has turned into uh, some sort of a tragedy. And uh, uh so, you know, these things happen when we fail to look at the warnings, when we fail to heed the signs that uh, come our way. And that's a little bit what I want us to speak on. I want to speak to you about this morning as we look at uh, the, the subject here uh, of the tragedy of neglecting salvation. Okay, and we're going to, um, I'd like for you to open your Bibles to the second chapter of Hebrews. And we're going to take a look at the first four verses in this chapter. Uh, and uh, as I said, uh, the tragedy of neglecting salvation. And uh, I'm, I don't have a, uh, a real, uh, you know, uh, uh, insightful outline or anything of that nature on this. Simply one that follows the, uh, the text in this and uh, that deals with uh, uh, right teaching, you know, demands response, and of course, uh, a warning here to the intellectually convinced. And then he gives us three reasons, all right, three reasons why we should trust Jesus, okay? Three reasons to receive Christ. So that's what we're going to look at in this passage this morning. So if you take your Bibles there in chapter Hebrews chapter 2 and stand with me and we'll read this passage together. All right? Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Heavenly Father, as we examine this passage, Lord, as we seek to understand the, the, the truth of what is being urged upon us here and the warning that is issued, Lord, we ask you to open our hearts and our minds. Father, each of us here is, uh, comes from a little bit different place. Uh, we're thankful, Father, for every believer here in the name uh, that comes in the name of Jesus Christ. But Lord, we are aware that there may be some here this morning that have yet to make a commitment to Jesus Christ that do not know him as Lord and Savior. And so our prayer, Father, is that for those that they may hear the word today, they may heed, take heed to the things which you speak to their hearts of, and that Jesus Christ may be glorified. So, Father, hear our prayer. Do your work, blessed Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Please be seated. Okay. You know, hell is full of people, I think, who 
were never actively opposed to Jesus Christ, uh, but who simply neglected the gospel. Uh, people like that are, these are the ones that I think are um, in view here in this passage that we just read this morning. Uh, they're well aware of the, uh, uh, the, the good news of salvation. They know the truth. They even believe the truth in the sense that uh, they acknowledge its truthfulness and its rightness. Uh, they know that uh, salvation is provided in Jesus Christ, but they're not willing to make that commitment, not willing to commit their lives to Jesus Christ. So they, they drift past the call of God into eternal damnation. Folks, what a tragedy. What a tragedy indeed this is. It makes these verses here this morning extremely important and very urgent. So I would like for us to take a look first at something that uh, the writer to the Hebrews is emphasizing to those who would share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to those who would be teachers, as he, in uh, this first verse here, he is speaking to the fact that right teaching demands a response. All right? Right teaching demands a response. In, you know, into the middle of this beautiful treatise that the writer to the Hebrews is making about Jesus Christ, that Christ is superior to everything and everyone. He is the exalted one, that he alone can purge sin, that he is God, that he is a creator, and that he is worthy of worship. All this, these glorious things that have, the accolades, all the things that have been said about Jesus in this first chapter. Then he pauses and gives a personal invitation to us here. To us, his readers, his hearers here, uh, to respond to what we have learned here. Well, you might say that uh, uh, what has happened here is that his teaching just breaks into an invitation. This is a glorious invitation, actually, what he gives here. But you know what? And the reason I say that is that an effective teacher must do much more than simply present Biblical facts. Alright? Um, he must also warn. He must exhort. He must invite. And, you know, by the time that this writer to the Hebrews here got, gets to verse one of this chapter two, alright, he is just full of passion. His heart is just aflame with the glories of Christ and all that he, uh, invites us to enjoy. He cares about the salvation of his hearers. He's not satisfied with simply uh, uh, this, um, uh, that his readers, uh, he doesn't want to just set out this teaching, all right, uh, doctrine, and then just go on his way. Too often, I think, uh, teachers... Uh, oh, they prepare these wonderful lessons. You know, they've got all their, their points there for the lesson and they present all these truths and, and, uh, then they lay that all out and then what happens? They just go on to the next topic or that's it for the lesson that day until the next Sunday. But you know what? The reader here, he not only wants Christ to be seen and exalted here, but he wants Christ to be accepted. Jesus Christ needs to be accepted. A teacher may know a lot about the truth, 
But if he does not have a compassionate concern for how people react to this truth, then he's not a worthy teacher. I hope all of us take note of this fact, of this truth. Teachers, listen here what we said. God's word demands response. And a faithful teacher of the word teaches for response. In spite of the rejection of his own people, of their hardness of heart, and their history of persecuting God's messengers, Jesus still ached deeply in his soul, in his heart, for their salvation. In Matthew 23, he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. On another occasion, he told some of the religious leaders that he was speaking to, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me, and you are unwilling to come to me that you may have eternal life. He had a compassionate concern. Jesus was passionate for those that needed hope, that needed to hear about the salvation that he was offering them. Faithful teaching always demands a response. In the first chapter of this letter, this writer to the Hebrews becomes so impassioned in his preaching on the, the superiority of Christ to the angels you know, that the opening verse of, of uh, this chapter, he inserts this invitation, all right? And uh, it it's, it's, has both uh, uh, an exhortation as well as a warning here. What to do and what happens if you don't do it. And so he inserts this warning here, a major warning. It's as if the writer couldn't uh, go on but so far without stopping to make an appeal. Now what are you going to do about this, he says. We can know the truth. We can know all the truth that there is to know about Jesus Christ. And yet still go to hell if we never make him our own by being made his own. Jesus Christ is our Savior. He has a passion for us and it was evident By his death on the cross, is it not? And so, because of that, he issues a warning here. Uh, And and this warning, who is it directed to? It's a warning to the intellectually convinced. Look at verse 3 there. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was uh, at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. So who is this? That he is writing to? Is it Christians that he's writing to here, do you think? You know, how can that be? Because they can never be in danger of neglecting salvation, at least in the sense of uh, not receiving it since they already have it. Right? You know that, don't you? Amen. All right. All right. The warning then must be directed to non-Christians. All right? But if the warning here is to unbelievers, then why does... The writer to the Hebrews here speak of we and us. Well, this warning is directed to those who are intellectually convinced of the gospel, but who fail to receive it for themselves. 
Does he include himself among the intellectually convinced but uncommitted? Is the author saying that he himself is not a Christian? No, that's not what he's saying. The us in the us here, okay, is all of those who have heard the truth. It's us, right? We have heard the truth. The author's willingness here to identify himself with his readers doesn't mean that he is in the same spiritual condition that they are in. He's simply saying to them, all of us who have heard the gospel ought to accept it. All right? We have all met people that say, yes, yes, I believe that Christ is the Savior and that I need him. But I'm not ready to make that commitment yet. Oh, my goodness, folks. Maybe your husband or your wife or your brother or a good friend. Maybe, maybe you know somebody like that. Huh? We've all met people that say, yes, I believe that Christ is a Savior and that I need him. But I'm not ready to make that commitment yet. They come to church. They hear and hear and hear the word. And, and uh, oh, goodness, they know it's true. They know they need it, but they are not willing to commit themselves and personally accept Jesus Christ as Lord. They have all the facts, but they're not willing to make the commitment. They're like the man who believes that the boat will hold him, okay, but he won't get in it, right? Uh, We believe that this warning is to those who have heard the gospel, that know the facts about Jesus Christ, Know that he died for them, that he desires to forgive their sins, that he can give them new life. But they're not willing to confess him as Lord and Savior. You know, this certainly has to be the most tragic category of people in existence today. A pastor friend of mine told me about a lady who came to... uh, to see him, uh, came into a, his office one day. She informed him that she was a, a prostitute. And she said, I need help. I'm desperate. Well, after presenting the claims of Christ to her, uh, my friend said, would you like to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord? Yes, she replied. I've had it. She was at the bottom and she knew it. So she prayed a prayer and seemingly invited Christ into her life. Well, the pastor then said to her, I want you to do something. Do you have your little book with you that has the names of all your contacts? When she replied that she did, he suggested, well, let's take a match and burn it right now. Looking kind of surprised, she responded, what do you mean? He said, just what I said. If you really met Jesus Christ as your Lord, if you really have accepted his forgiveness and are going to live your life for him, let's burn that book and celebrate your new birth right now and just praise the Lord. But it's worth a lot of money, a lot of money. Ah. He says, I'm sure it is. And then she said, I don't want to burn my book. I guess I really don't want Jesus, do I? Well, (laughs) she left. 
And my friend told me, he says, I don't know what happened to that dear girl. My heart aches for her, and I often think about her. I know that she knew the facts of the gospel and believed them, but she wasn't willing to make the sacrifice. Even though what she refused to give up was worth nothing, and what she could have had in Jesus Christ was everything. Folks, there are so many people like that. They know the truth. They stand at the edge of the right decision, but they never make it. They just, they just drift. Well, the purpose of this passage, these four verses here, is uh, to give people like this a powerful shove toward Jesus Christ. Listen to me, my friend. If you're here this morning and, and you're in this condition, my prayer and the prayer of this church family is that the Holy Spirit will give you a powerful shove toward Jesus Christ this morning. If you're on the edge of a decision for Christ, but because of your self-will, because of your sin, because of fear of persecution from family or friends, whatever, or for any other reason, and you say no to Christ and continue to neglect Him, you are a fool, and a fool beyond fools. An eternal tragedy. The writer here then proceeds to give three reasons to receive Christ. Three reasons. Uh, the first of which we see is the character of Christ. Look at verse 1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. You say, now, well, wait a minute. Now, what does that statement have to do with the character of Christ? Well, you notice the first word in that verse is therefore. You know what it's there for? It's there for you to look back at what he has just finished telling you. Oh, the glories, the beauty, the wondrous glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is Jesus Christ. He's, the, he's called the Son and the heir of all things and the creator of the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, as it tells us in uh, verse 3, the exact representation of the divine nature, the sustainer of the universe, the purifier from sin, and the one who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then in verses 4 through 7, he is worshipped and served by angels. In verses 8 through 12, he is anointed above all others, the Lord of creation, the unchangeable, everlasting God. This is who Christ is. Oh, who? Who could possibly reject him? What kind of person could reject that kind of Christ? The Christ who came into the world as God incarnate, who died on the cross to forgive our sins, who paid our penalty, who showed us divine love and offers to introduce us to God and give us blessing and joy beyond imagination. That's who he is. God, Jesus was God's voice 
He was God in the world. You see, to reject Jesus was to reject God. And to reject God is to reject the reason for our existence. Because of this magnificence of the person of Christ, a man is a fool to reject the salvation that he offers. I don't understand. <clears throat> I don't understand how a person can, who, uh, can know who Christ is, who um, can admit that the gospel is true and still not commit his life to Christ. That's just an incomprehensible mystery to me. A tragedy. Look at a couple of the words, a couple of the phrases that are here in this passage. I want us to see because they are very significant in understanding how it is that we kind of drift this way. Okay, he says there in in that uh, first verse, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Now, those two phrases, give earnest heed, lest we drift away, are emphatic phrases. They are in here and they are emphasized by the nature of their, their translation and the, the tenses of the, uh, the, the words here. In other words, what he is saying here on the basis of who Christ is, we must give careful attention to what we have heard about him. We cannot hear these things and let them just slide through our minds. And the word here that's translated drift away from, well, this is such a significant image, this drift away. It pictures like an ancient sailing ship that's anchored near the shore, you know. And as the sailors sleep and the, the wind begins to pick up and the anchor begins to drag slowly across the sandy bottom. And by the time the sailors awake, the ship is pitching, has been drifted, pulled out of the harbor and into the dangerously heavy seas. Look, folks. You and I aren't very likely to consciously pull up anchor, the anchor of our faith, and to abandon the shelter that Jesus provides. But unless we give constant heed to his word, we can drift. We can drift unaware from our moorings. So with this understanding of what the writer is talking about here, we could probably translate this Verse is something like, therefore, we must the more eagerly secure our lives to the things which we have been taught, lest the ship of life drift past the harbor of salvation and be lost forever. Now, remember who he's talking to here. Those who intellectually know and understand the truth, but have never made that commitment. They are in danger of slipping past their salvation and into the pain of eternal damnation. Most people, you know, they don't go headlong uh, in a, uh, and intentionally into hell. They just kind of drift into it. Most people don't deliberately, you know, in a moment, just turn their backs on God and, and curse Him. Most people just slowly, almost imperceptibly, slip past the harbor of salvation and out into eternal destruction. So the picture here isn't of an ignorant sailor or a wantonly rebellious sailor, but of a careless 
sailor. A careless sailor. You know, we see how these things happen in life. As I made reference to in the beginning, that, that the, the, so many people in our, uh, in our population in this past election were taken so by surprise because they were careless in the way in which they viewed things, looked at things. We had better take all the more heed, therefore, lest unintentionally and unexpectedly we one day find ourselves having forever drifted past salvation, past the harbor. We must be sure to understand that it is not the gospel that slips, it's the word will never slip from us, right? The danger is our drifting from it. The harbor of salvation is absolutely secure. It's Jesus Christ who never moves. He never changes and is always available to anyone who wants the protection and security of his righteousness. Jesus spoke in Luke chapter 9. He said, let these words sink into your ears. That can imply apply to the entire gospel, folks. The whole counsel of God. It must get inside of us. It must make a change in our lives. It's not enough just to hear it. This is only the beginning. We are reminded in the Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 4, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to all their whole body. When you hear the word of God, make it yours. Make it yours. Don't drift past it. That's the most dangerous thing you can do. You know, you can't help wondering, you know, the, how many thousands of people are in hell that were so close to salvation. How many thousands were close to being, you know, secured in Christ only to drift away because of their failure to receive what they had heard and sometimes maybe even actually believed but never repented, never made that commitment. Drifting is so quiet, it's so easy, but it's so damning. Wow. I think of a story that I read about an English explorer uh, his name is William Edward Perry. He took a crew to the Arctic Ocean, and they wanted to go farther north to continue their charting, so they calculated their location by the stars, and they started a very difficult and treacherous march to the north. Well, uh, they walked an hour, another hour, an hour, another hour, hour after hour, and finally, exhausted, totally exhausted, they stopped. They took their bearings again from the stars and there discovered that they were farther south than they had been when they started. Well, they had been walking on an ice flow that was moving south faster than they were walking north. I wonder how many people think that their good deeds and um, that all the time that, uh, that they have... Um, 
uh, been doing things that uh, they think were helping others and their uh, religiousness, uh, that they were taking them step by step to God. You know, only to discover they were moving away from him faster than they were supposedly walking toward him. How tragic. How tragic. One day they awake to find, just like Perry's crew, that all the time they've been moving in the wrong direction. A person should never be satisfied with their religious feelings coming to church or with being married to a Christian spouse or with church activities because he'll be drifting into hell unless he has made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The second important reason that um, for accepting Christ is the certainty of judgment for those who do not do so. Look at verses 2 and 3. It tells us about the inevitability of this kind of punishment. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? Now, there is um, this language here is making an assumption that... Uh, of a condition here that's already been fulfilled. What it means is, uh, this phrase could be translated for, in view of the fact that the word spoken through angels. Okay. Now that's significant, folks. The word was spoken through angels. Why is Old Testament law, particularly the Ten Commandments, so connected with angels? Well, why does the writer emphasize that angels... Uh, were the ones who mediated the Old uh, Testament covenant. He does it because the angels were instrumental in bringing the Ten Commandments, as is we find in several passages which make it perfectly clear. Psalm 68, verse 17 says, The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them, as at Sinai, in holiness. Sinai, where Moses was given the law. The Lord was accompanied by a host of angels. Moses himself reported that the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand, there was flashing lightning for them. The angels were instrumental in delivering and confirming the old covenant that was given to God's people. Now, both the Old and the New Testament tells us that angels were at Sinai and were instrumental in bringing the law. And if you broke the law, the law broke you. There wasn't any way out. All right? The law was inviolable. Punishment for breaking the law was sure. It was certain. They knew exactly what to expect. Spelled out very clearly. As our the, the, the text here tells us, every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. Now, uh, these two words, transgression, disobedience, talk about uh, a, a transgression being to step across a line. It's a willful act, overt sin. Okay, Disobedience, though, carries the idea of an imperfect hearing, or, but not like that of a deaf man uh, who is unable to hear, uh, but like uh, disobedience deliberately shuts its ears to the commands and the warnings and the invitations of God. 
It's a deliberate turning away, shutting your mind and your heart down so that you do not obey and respond. One is active. One is a sin of neglect. The law that God set was strong. It was inviolable. In Jude chapter verse 5 we read, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Now, folks, that's a severe judgment on unbelievers. Hmm? Notice how the word just is used there in, in verse 2. All right? God is often accused of being unjust, you know, when his punishment seems to be out of proportion to the, the wrong that was committed. But God, by his very nature, cannot be unjust. Listen, folks, he removed from them among his, from his people, among his um, uh, his, his um, under the old covenant, God punished very severely those who were determined to live without Him, to divide, to defy Him. He removed them from among the people for the sake of those who were pure and holy, and wanted to live for Him. We all know. Uh, the influence that evil can have when it's allowed to seep into a community or uh, a relationship. It's destructive. And God's judgment on the people of Israel was severe because they knew better. They knew better. Punishment is always related to light. The more light that we have, the more severe our punishment. Jesus was very clear about this. He began to reproach the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they would not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, he said. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Here's the principle. Here's the principle. The more you know, the greater your punishment for not abiding by what you know. You know, hell is a very real place. Tyre and Sidon were terribly guilty of unbelief and disobedience. And throughout the scriptures, Sodom and Gomorrah typify the the ungodliness and the immorality. But none of these were as guilty as Capernaum or Bethsaida. Why? Or Chorazin, because these three not only had the light of the Old Testament, but they had the light, the very light of God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In the New Testament, hell is called a place of eternal fire, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's called a lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. It's a bottomless pit or abyss. Others, there are so many descriptions. There are degrees of punishment in hell as well. The hottest places belong to those who have rejected the most light. Jesus, listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will shall receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it 
and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but a few. And from everyone who has been given much shall much be required. And to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. The Lord's talking about judgment here. And his point is very simple. The greater the light, the greater the accountability. So, the truth that's given here as clear as possible in this passage is, as we see in Hebrews, it's um, related to us in Hebrews chapter 10. He says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Folks, we need to heed the warning. The certainty of judgment should be a powerful motivation for accepting Christ. Listen, my friend, to the warning that God is issuing. But the third important reason for accepting Christ very quickly here, and then we'll we'll close, is the confirmation of God. Verses 3 and 4 The writer says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders and with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. You know, the gospel was first given by Christ and it was then confirmed by the apostles who heard him in person. But what's even more important here is the fact that it was confirmed by God himself bearing witness. When Jesus preached, he also did some things that made it even more believable. He said, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand the Father is in me and I in the Father. You see, when he claimed to be God and then did things that only God can do, he confirmed confirmed his divinity. And consequently, the truth of his message. In verse 4, tells us, God also bearing witness with both signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Folks, these gifts that God had given to these apostles were to confirm the truth of what Jesus had been teaching and preaching and what the the apostles subsequent to his ascension were teaching the people. And these miracles and signs and wonders continued until the apostles passed away and the word of God had been established. Until we had the written record of the apostles' witness. When God's word was completed... These other confirmations ceased. Uh, If someone comes along today and says, thus says the Lord. Well, how do you know that what he is saying is genuine? How do you know that? You simply open the word. Confirm it in the word. You check what he says against the word. And so the three great reasons why a person should not neglect the gospel of salvation are the character of Christ and the certainty of the judgment that is coming and the confirmation of God. God confirms it in your heart. If you're not a believer, 
you will never have the influence of the Holy Spirit in your heart. But when you receive the Lord Jesus Christ through repentance and confession, turning to him in faith, then God sends his, gives you his Holy Spirit. He is a deposit, as Paul writes in verse 13, chapter 1 of Ephesians. He is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. That deposit is the evidence in you. It is the influence in your heart and in your mind that tells you what you are seeing, what you are reading is truth. God desires that we know. God desires that we be, that we be sure, that we be confident. And He continually seeks to confirm that in our, in our hearts. First John chapter five, verse 13 says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Listen, my friend. Today, you've heard the warning. You know the truth about the the glorious, wondrous life of our Lord Jesus Christ. (coughs) That he is indeed the Son of God. And that he went to Calvary's cross to pay your sin debt. And you can be free of that debt today simply by coming to Christ, committing yourself, your life to him. Repent of your sin. Turn away from the life that you're living. Getting rid of all those old desires and allowing God to plant a new heart in you to shape his heart into your heart. (coughs) Today is a day of invitation. Today is a day of confirmation. God will confirm it in your heart today. Will you come? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation here in just a moment. And when we do, if you just simply step out, come forward and say, I want to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And you will know him. Will you come?